and we'll be in verses 31 through 44 of Mark's gospel. When I'm taking my watch off, a number of you have, have noticed when I'm looking down at the clock, you say, don't worry about it. Well, now you won't know when I'm looking at it or not. So, uh, uh, so, so that's there. Um, so what we'll be looking at uh, Mark 6. Now, I mentioned earlier that, that the, the theme of, of the Lord as our shepherd has, has been on my mind a lot, and, and this fits mainly, it's been on my mind because of this text. So let, let me start by reading something to you. I, I'm sure that you'll be familiar with this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, one commentator writes that it is probable that no six consecutive verses of Scripture are more frequently committed to memory than those of this psalm. So if you don't know, that was Psalm 23, one of the most popular, well-known psalms in all of Scripture, one of the most well-known passages in the entire Bible. And it's it's, it's a beautiful psalm. And it's been the source of great comfort and encouragement throughout the ages, all, all throughout the history of the church. This has been a favored psalm. And one commentator asked, well, what can be conceived sweeter or finer than this representation of God as a shepherd? There's, no, there's nothing sweeter that can be conceived of than, than the, the, this image of God as our shepherd. And this is, this is why this, this psalm has been so well loved. It, it proclaims that God will guide his sheep and he will feed his sheep and he'll protect his sheep, and, and that he will be with his sheep forever. And so this psalm, it gives us all the assurance that we need to follow him faithfully in this crazy world. It's a beautiful psalm. But what I want to say this morning is that the beauty of this psalm, the, the comfort of this psalm, the assurance of this psalm, everything about this psalm becomes even more beautiful. Its, its beauty is, is raised up, it's emphasized when it's understood in light of the full revelation of Jesus Christ as the good shepherd. You see, whether David knew it or not, the the shepherd that he was rejoicing in in Psalm 23 was going to be his son, the one that would come after him and rule and shepherd God's people. The one who would rule on David's throne forever was the same one who would feed, lead, and and guide God's people. Not only that, but, but when Jesus comes as the good shepherd, his goodness is, is not primarily seen in the leading and the feeding and the guiding, though that's there, but, but as we mentioned, his goodness is seen primarily in the fact that he laid down his life for his sheep. And so when we, we consider Psalm 23 in light of, of this full revelation of Jesus Christ as a good shepherd, the, the psalm, we, we read it with, with, with new eyes as it is, and so we, we understand Jesus as, as the, the full revelation of the good shepherd. So then we come back to Psalm 23, we see Jesus as the good shepherd, and we grow in our love and our affection for him, and we grow in our desire to follow him all the days of our lives. And, and so that's my hope this morning, that, that we would see Jesus, that you would see Jesus, that I would see Jesus as the good shepherd. And so we're going to read a passage. It's a miracle passage, and, and it's easy to get lost in these miracle passages, but, but I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. So instead of getting caught up in the study notes and in the arguments about the nature of, of this miracle that we're going to see, I simply want to hold forth Jesus 
as the good shepherd, the one who has come to guide and shepherd God's people. And so we'll, I'll pull out our, our passage. I'm going to read it in, in just a moment. But in the passage, there's, four, there's three specific things that point to the shepherd-like care of Jesus. So everybody got the main point? We're going to see Jesus as the good shepherd. Well, if you're in your Bibles, you can, you can go to Mark 6, and I'm going to be, begin reading in verse 31. So Mark 6, 31, and I'm going to read through 44. You can follow along in your copy of the Bible. And he said to them, that's the disciples, Jesus talking to the disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran, on, ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, when he ran ashore, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, "This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away, Jesus, to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat." But Jesus answered them, "You give them something to eat." And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they went, and when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all, all the people, to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up up to heaven, and he said a blessing, and he broke the loaves and gave them to the, to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were all satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Well, that's our passage. And so, so as I said, there's, there's three, three things that, that I see here that, that point to Jesus and his shepherd-like care. And so the way I've broken it down is we see his concern for the disciples in verses 31 and 32. We see his compassion, specifically his compassion for the people in verses 33 and 34. And then we see his miraculous and abundant provision for the people and the disciples in verses 35 through 44. So let's look firstly at his concern for the disciples there in verse verses 31 and 32. So remember, this, this, this story, this narrative is picking up right where we left off last week. He, the disciples had performed miracles and they'd taught as Jesus' representatives. Remember, he sent them out and they'd experienced a lot of what Jesus had ex- been experiencing through Mark thus far. So they had effective power to, to heal and to cast out demons. And they had, they had the, a message that they preached authoritatively. And so at the outset of our, our passage, we see they also experienced another aspect of Jesus' Uh, ministry, and that's the hectic pace that accompanied everything that Jesus did. So Jesus, there's people coming from all over, and he sees it's wearing his disciples down, and so he tells them, go, take a retreat, take a time of rest. You need to rest. And so he says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest. And so Jesus, of all people, understands the unique challenges facing the disciples as they return from this exhausting ministry. And so all of them, Jesus and the disciples, they get into a boat and they head for a desolate place. But as, as we read, not an uncommon experience for Jesus there in verse 33. Notice what happens. Many saw them going. So they're, they're getting in the boat and they're, they're sailing away. Many saw and recognized them, 
And so what do they do? They run there to where they're going on foot from all the towns, and they got, got there ahead of them. So they beat Jesus and the disciples to the place of rest. And so they're heading to a desolate place in order to retreat and rest, but by the time they get there, the prospect of retreat and rest has quickly faded. Instead, many people, there's a crowd that has seen them, and they run alongside the shoreline. So they're not going across the sea. They're, they're just kind of going along this north shore. So they see, and so I just have this image of, of them maybe, come on, wind, wind, Jesus, call for wind. Let, let's beat them there. Um, but so the boat is going, and then people run. They beat them there. And so Jesus and the disciples arrive with a crowd. Now, before, before I think there's a, a, an immediate application for us, I do want to draw your attention to the, to the significance of the fact that this entire event takes place in a desolate place. So that, that phrase, desolate place, if you notice, it is, it is repeated three or four times in this passage. That, that's, that's Mark is emphasizing that. Maybe your translation says a quiet place or a deserted place or a secluded place or a remote place. But, but that theme is significant. And it's in this place, the desolate place, that, that not only will the disciples' needs be met, but here in the desolate place, the pursuing crowd, the shepherdless sheep, their needs will also be met. What we'll see is that everyone who gathers with Jesus in this desolate place will eat and be satisfied. So, so hold that in your mind as, as we get there. But, but as I said, one application right from the outset is, is, is the, the need for rest. Now, now, let me make this clear. This application is not for everyone here. Okay, but some of you need to hear the call for rest. And so Jesus' compassion for his disciples is that he sees they're wearing out and they need rest. He recognizes their, their humanity, their weakness, their frailty. And so sometimes, as, as we seek to apply this now, sometimes doing ministry can be used as an excuse for not slowing down. I'm doing good things. I'm, I'm doing God's work. I've got to volunteer. The church needs me. We, we should recognize here that, that even something as good as God's work, something as good as ministry, can become an unhealthy slave master. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. And, and, and this, this controlling, this, this enslavement to, to ministry can control us and rob us of our necessary rest. We need rest. There's only one person who doesn't need rest, and that's God. He, he's the only one who doesn't sleep and slumber. And so like I said, it's not for everyone Okay, some of you here may need to hear the opposite warning. You may need to hear, stop resting, do something, right? But, but that's not here in this passage. So, so if you're here this morning and you need to heed this call, you know who you are. You know who you are. Rest. Rest. Don't make doing God's work an idol. And sin, also notice that in their rest, that they're with Christ, resting. Notice he's with them. He doesn't say, you go away, I'm going to stay here. No, he goes with them and and so doing, don't let doing God's work rob you of Christ. If your ministry busyness prevents you from spending time with Christ, or if your ministry busyness is carried out apart from spending time with Christ, then you're missing the point of ministry, which is Christ himself. So don't miss Christ in your rest, but, but rest if you need to. And so we see the shepherd-like care of Jesus displayed in his concern for his disciples. But, but notice, secondly, his shepherd-like care is displayed there in verses 33 and 34 by his compassion for the people, the crowd that's gathered. So verse 34 picks up after the boat arrives on the shore. So Jesus gets there and he sees the crowds. And there in verse 34 it says, Mark records, he had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so here Mark gives us an insight into the mind of Christ. Mark tells us exactly what Jesus is thinking. So, so Jesus shows up on the shore and he sees this crowd and it says that he, he, he has compassion because they were like sheep without 
a shepherd. And this image, this, this shepherd imagery sets the stage for all that's coming ahead. And so what Jesus, what, what Mark is doing here is he's, he's showing us, the, okay, he sees them as sheep without a shepherd, and that's going to motivate everything he does from this point forward. And so Jesus is being presented as a shepherd who's caring for sheep, and he's going to show us exactly what, how Jesus cares for the sheep. And so, so Mark is intentionally giving us categories in order to understand the person and the ministry of Jesus. Mark wants us, as, as his readers, to understand that Jesus is the great shepherd, and, and he's acting as the one caring for the lost sheep. Now, when we hear about a shepherd and we hear about lost sheep, maybe, maybe we conjure up some ideas. I mean, we, we probably most all of us have some knowledge about the task of a shepherd, the responsibilities of a shepherd. We may think about the parable of the lost sheep. We may think about uh, David tending the sheep. We may have a picture, maybe our grandparents' house had a picture of a Jesus with a, a small sheep or a, a lamb around his neck. We may think about the 23rd Psalm. Uh, we may think about a lot of things. Um, and all these things are right and fitting, but, but what I want to do for a minute is I want to trace the theme of a shepherd and lost sheep throughout the scripture because it's a theme that runs all the way throughout. It's not just when Jesus shows up that, oh, here, let's introduce this theme of shepherd and lost sheep. Rather, the, the theme of, of a shepherd and lost sheep runs throughout the entire scriptures. I mean, think about, think about for a moment the Israelites in the wilderness wanderings. I mean, fundamentally, we, we would say God is the one who provides for them, right? It's clear. God leads them. God gives them manna. God does all this. Okay, God meets his people in the wilderness, remember, the desolate place, and he miraculously provides for them. But throughout the wilderness, it was Moses who was appointed by God to lead and to guide his people. So Moses was the appointed shepherd, if you will. And through Moses, God shepherded his people. He cared for them through this appointed man, and so then in, you can write down this passage, but it's, I'm going to read a, a portion of a passage in Numbers 27, verse 17, where Moses has reached the end of his life. Okay? God has said, Moses, you can lead him this far, but you're not taking him into the promised land. You remember why Moses couldn't go in? Right? He had struck the rock, and he was upset, and so he didn't obey God. And so God says, all right, Moses, you've come this far, and uh, thanks for your work, but, but your job stops here. Right? He can't go. And so Moses, even in this sense, he's, he's an in, he's an imperfect shepherd. But, but notice in Numbers verse, chapter 27, I'll read this for you, beginning in verse 15, Moses at the end of his life says this to the Lord. He says, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. And here's, here's what Moses is asking. Appoint a man who shall go out before the people and come in before the people who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. That's Moses' cry. He knows, Lord, I, I, I know I, I can't do this, but please raise up a shepherd to carry on this ministry. And so we read that the Lord then appoints Joshua to take over Moses' place. And, and then Joshua leads the people, the conquest of, of the promised land. And so I just want to show you that, that Moses understood that God's people needed a shepherd. They needed someone to care for them, to nurture them, to feed them, to protect them. Moses' greatest fear in this instance was the Israelites becoming like sheep without a shepherd. See, you recognize that phrase? It's the same thing that, that Mark records Jesus as seen. And so God appoints Joshua, going back to the Old Testament, he appoints Joshua to follow the line of Moses. And after Joshua came others like Moses who would lead the people. Now, now I'm speaking broadly, and, and the offices are changing, but, but from Joshua, you get to judges. And you have these appointed judges that God raises up to, to lead. And then we go to kings, who, who starting with Saul, we have kings that lead the people, and then prophets. 
And so the pattern is established broadly, generally, that, that God appoints shepherds, God appoints leaders for his people. You see that theme? God appoints people to lead his people. You see that? Now, I want to ask, as Jesus is here on the seashore, seeing this crowd, I want to ask you whether or not that broad pattern of God appointing shepherds had stopped. Had that, had that theme stopped? And the point is that it hadn't. The reality is that, that that had not changed when Jesus is on the seashore. So when Jesus sees these people and they're like sheep without a shepherd, he's talking about sheep who are supposed to have shepherds. There are people who are supposed to be shepherding these people. So when Jesus sees them not being shepherded, shepherded he's, he's indicting the leadership, the Jewish religious leaders, because they were the ones who were supposed to be the shepherds. But they had neglected their responsibility. They were charged with shepherding the people. They were stewards of God's commands, students of God's word, but they were the ones who, as we read in the Gospels, they were loading God's people with burdens, and they were leading the Israelites farther away from their God. They were the ones who missed it. They weren't shepherding or caring for God's people, and so it's no no surprise that when Jesus steps on the scene that, that these are the very same people who fail to recognize the good shepherd who's there. They didn't recognize him, but they should have known. They should have known that there was a shepherd coming. In fact, in, in the, another Old Testament place, and you can write this down as Ezekiel chapter 34. So in Ezekiel th- chapter 34, the entire chapter is about the, the failures of the shepherds of Israel. So the prophet is writing about the, the failures of the people who are supposed to be leading the Israelites who are, who are failing miserably. And in verse 23 of Ezekiel 34, near the end of the chapter that's against the shepherds, listen to what the Lord says through Ezekiel. He says, There's a day coming when I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be prey. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And so as Ezekiel's writing that, do you you see what he's pointing to? There's going to be a day when when I'm going to appoint my shepherd over my people, and he's going to rescue them from the, the evil shepherds. That, that, that's what Jesus comes as. Remember, as, as Ezekiel is writing, David is long gone. He's been dead and gone a long time, but, but there, Ezekiel is looking for the son of David, the promised one, to come and be the shepherd. And so the, these leaders of Israel should have known and recognized the, the good shepherd when he stepped on the stage. And so, so Mark, as he's using these categories, and especially this phrase of sheep without a shepherd, he wants us to identify Jesus as the promised one, the promised shepherd, the Lord himself coming to rescue his people. And so let me, let me make two applications just from this passage. First, notice how Jesus shepherds his people. Do you see there where, where it says that he, in verse 34, where it says that they're like sheep without a shepherd, what did he do? He began to teach them many things. And so Jesus shepherds by teaching them. That, that's the, the, one of the ways that he shepherds them. And an application is, is simply this, that Jesus still shepherds through his word. That's the means that, that Jesus, the good shepherd, uses now to care for his people. Now, I, I don't mean that we seek to hear audibly the words of Jesus. I'm not telling you to wake up and, and pray and say, speak to me. I want to hear you. That's a good prayer, but, but I, don't, I don't think you should expect an audible voice. In, in this mystical sense, rather, we read his words that have been kept for us and preserved for us in his scriptures. No other book 
has the power to lead, guide, feed, protect like the scriptures. That, that is how Jesus shepherds his people through his word. And so if you want to hear Jesus calling, you open up your scriptures. That's where God speaks. That's where Christ makes promises. I mean, I just, I just here, let me mention a couple. So, so if you're here this morning and, and you know Christ as your shepherd, listen to these promises. Think about how these would affect. Maybe you've had a hard week. Maybe one of these are, are promises you need to hear this morning. But, but Scripture, the New Testament, is full of these promises. And these are specifically from Jesus. Listen to this, John 14. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. This afternoon I'm going to be sharing the hope that that gives Christians in the midst of sorrow of, of death or loss, or maybe here, Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a promise. Do you feel alone? Do you struggle with loneliness? Right? You're not alone, Christian. The Lord is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Or maybe Matthew 26, the, the Sermon on the Mount. One, there's many promises there, but one specifically in Matthew 6, 25. Do not be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious. I know what you need. And, and actually, Jesus says, look around. Now's a good time for us to heed this warning. Look at the flowers of the field. And look, at, look at the birds of the air. They are living. They're blooming. They're growing. And, and the Lord cares for you much more than that. You're way more significant than, than a flower that, that's here today and gone tomorrow. Don't be anxious. He knows your needs. Or in, in Romans chapter 8, Paul makes a promise and he connects the, the love of God that's been shown in Christ. He says, I'm convinced that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that's a promise for, for, for a multitude of situations. Nothing can separate you. Not death, not life, not principalities, not demons, not, not height. Or nothing can separate you. That, that's a secure thing. You're secure. And so in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, that, that's all I'll, I'll mention here, but we have a treasure trove of guidance, comfort, encouragement, food, sustenance. And so believer, graze among the green pastures of God's Word because it's there that, that the Good Shepherd has provided for your needs. Do it daily, do it multiple times a day, for that's where you'll find the Good Shepherd and His guidance. Well, and the second application from that pas- passage from that section, as we just saw, there, there's a lot of categories and occurrences of the Old Testament that Jesus is tied to. And so when we read, as we read the New Testament, we see that Jesus comes as a continuation, as a fulfillment that, that of all that came before. So it's not as though Old Testament stops, now here's a new story, here's Jesus, Let, let's think about him. No, it's two Testaments, right? And it's easy for us to think, well, they're separate. And in one sense they are, but in the, uh, another sense, it's one story, it's one big story. And so the New Testament isn't understood in light of the Old Testament. It must be. Types and shadows and categories of thought that take center stage in the New Testament are developed from the Old Testament. Think about the the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, if you don't have the system and the structure of the Old Testament, you don't understand what that means. And so the, the, the Bible is understood in light of itself. And so if we read the New Testament if we're confused. I mean, I just mentioned 1 Corinthians. There's some parts in there you think, well, what is that about? Or, or the book of Hebrews. Or, I know all of you struggle with this, the book of Revelation. Right? What in the world do these things mean? Well, well, I would argue that sometimes the best thing for you to do is to go read the Old Testament. To be familiar with, with what came before. Because what came before helps us interpret 
how to understand what comes after. Well, the shepherd-like character, moving on to our third point, the shepherd-like character of Jesus is displayed by his concern for his disciples, his compassion for his people, but then thirdly, by his miraculous and abundant provision. Then verses 35 through 44. So as Jesus continues teaching, verse 35 notes that it, it's getting late. So it's getting late. The, the, the day is passing. And so his disciples, they come to him and they, they say, hey, 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 teacher, here, here's an issue. Uh, it's a desolate place. The hour's late. Um, all these people are here. So, so how about we send them away into the surrounding countryside and villages so they can get something to eat, right? The time's coming, Jesus. Let, let's take care of this now. We've got to be in front of this thing. We're going to have a bunch of grumpy, hungry people. Now, on one hand, right, this is a, seems to be a sensitive observation. Disciples are concerned for the people, right? Seems to. Maybe, maybe they are a little bit. But I would argue it, it's not really sensitive at all. And, and here's why. There's two things. First, remember they've just seen God provide for them. Remember when he sent them out? What did he tell them not to take? M- money and food. So they've come back, and they've seen God provide for them as they were carrying out his mission. Okay, and so now they're, they're faced with no money, no food. We've got we to send them away. God can't do this. That's the first reason I think it's, it's, it's a lack of faith on display, so it's not really sensitive. But then second, when you compare Jesus' response to the solution with their response to the solution, the difference is, is day and night. Shepherds don't send sheep away to get their own food. That's what the disciples are saying. Send them away. Let them go, Let them go take care of themselves. That, that's not a shepherd's heart. And so there's no way that a compassion-filled Jesus is going to send all of these people away into the surrounding towns. He's going to meet their needs right there in the desolate place. And I, I love this quote. I'm going to share this. One, one commentator says, The norms of practical judgment appear to su- support the disciples' proposal. Right? Practical judgment appears, yeah, that's a good thing. Although, listen to what he says, although the impracticality of so large a company flocking to the neighboring town seems not to have been considered. I mean, think about this. We've got over 5,000 people. You think Chick-fil-A is crowded. Imagine that scene. 5,000 hungry people going to the, to, to the local restaurant. Tommy's on Saturday morning. There's nothing compared to that. And so, so that, that, that's not considerate of the situation. So Jesus, verse 37, responds. He says, you give them something to eat, not what they're expecting. So I think Jesus here, it's important to recognize, he's doing something very, very intentional. And, and I think he's, he's highlighting their insufficiency to remedy the problem. He's going to do it here and he's going to do it in, in a second. But he's telling them, feed the crowd. You do it to show them that they can't. And so their response is exactly what he expected. They say, are you kidding? Are you kidding us? How in the world are we going to be able to feed this crowd? Surely you don't want us to spend $10,000, which is what it would cost Jesus, just to give them bread. Disciples are beside themselves that Jesus would command them to do such a thing. I mean, think about it. This 200 denarii, it's certainly no pocket change for this group of unemployed fishermen and other common travelers with an itinerant rabbi. That, that's not chump change. And so they say, there's no way we can do this. Are you kidding? And so after establishing, okay, there's no way you can do it, good, you're right where I want you, thinks Jesus. He turns to the next lesson to show them their insufficiency. In verse 38, he says, how many loaves do you have? Go find out. What do we have? We don't have money? Okay, well, what do we have? And so in other words, you already proved you don't have the money to buy the food necessary to feed this crowd. Now let's establish you don't have the food either to feed this crowd. So go, find out what we have. And so they come back. I don't know how long it takes, but they come back. They say, we have five loaves and two fish. And so that's all. 
That's all, Jesus. No, we don't have money. We don't have food. Can we send them away now? Right? Fine. You, it's obvious, Jesus. It's in verse 39. Again, not what they expected. Tell everyone to sit down in groups. Sit down on green grass. Notice Mark is the only gospel writer that records the green grass. And I, I think the shepherd imagery is being pulled out here. The, these people on green grass who are going to be filled. But so Jesus says, sit down, put them in groups of, of hundreds and fifties. I mean, think about 5,000 people. How, how, how are you going to feed that? You've got to have some order. So I don't think there's much significance to the fifties and the hundreds. Maybe there is. But so then Jesus takes the five loaves. He takes the two fish. He looks up to heaven. He gives thanks. He breaks the loaves and gives them to the disciples to then set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. This is a miraculous provision. Okay, I have to say that I don't understand why, why people will often try and rationalize or explain this situation as if there's any possible explanation or way to envision how this happened. I mean, you can't. It's, that's the point. It's inexplicable. It's a miracle. So Jesus, in a desolate place with no money, extremely limited resources, generates enough food not only to pass out. Okay, remember, it's not as though everyone just gets one pinch. All right, save some. We got, we got 4,000 more people, just a little bit. But he passes them out, and they all ate and were all satisfied. I mean, this is a miraculous provision. There's no other way to explain it. It was a miracle. I, I was going to go... Here, there's an, an, an instance, write this, if you're taking notes, write down 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44, because there's an instance where Elisha, the prophet of God, is, is commanded, and, and the language is so similar, but he takes 20 loaves of, of bread and, and some grain, and he's commanded to give it to, uh, to uh, 400, I think it's 400, or no, it's 100 man, men, so it's, uh, yeah, 20 loaves and some grain for 100 men. And Elisha says, go give it to him. They say, how can this feed this many men? And says, the Lord has said, do it. So they're going to eat and they're going to have some left. And then 2 Kings records, they ate and had some left. But here, in comparison, what Jesus does, five loaves, two fish for 5,000 men, makes what Elisha did seem, seem just insignificant. Right? It's trivial almost. Elisha, he had nothing on this one. This is one who's far greater, far more powerful than even Elisha. So it's a miraculous provision, but also notice it's an abundant provision. There in verse 43, they, that is disciples, they they took up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000. So so not only, right, I mean, just follow, not only does everyone eat their fill, not only is everyone satisfied, but now there's 12 baskets full of leftovers. There's an abundant provision. I've always been amazed. I mean, I think, as I've worked through my mind, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm misunderstanding the, the nature of bread, loaves, and fish, okay, maybe that's part of it, but I would be hard-pressed to get five loaves and two fish into 12 baskets at the beginning. And here we read that, that there are 12 baskets full of leftovers after everyone had eaten and had their fill. This is an abundant provision. And so Mark lastly records that the number of men who ate were 5,000. Now Matthew's account does say that women and children were included, so possibly as more. Or Mark, this, this word here for men, could be all-inclusive. So it could mean that there are 5,000 people. Either way, the miraculous feeding does not lose its power. Okay, so we see this miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Now I'll make one more application and, and, and we're done, but I, I want to mention one thing. Because in Mark chapter 8, Lord willing, we'll cover a second miraculous feeding. 
gets the feeding of the 4,000. It's just, it's just one and a half chapters away. Now, there's a lot of similarities, and some people will say, well, look, it, there's just one feeding. Mark just kind of elaborated both of them. Okay, we can't do that because Jesus himself, will see, in, in talking with his disciples, he understands there to be two distinct feedings. And we'll say more about this when we get to chapter 8, but I just want to tell you here, because, and I mention this here because it has to do with the 12 basketful, baskets full of leftovers. Now, some commentators argue, and, and I agree here, that, that these 12 baskets are significant. Mark wants us to know there were 12 baskets. In the same way in, in chapter 8, he wants us to know there are seven baskets left over. So we think about 12, that's a significant number in biblical history, isn't it? Think about the tribes of Israel, and we think about the disciples, it's, it's, a, it's a significant number. And so here at the feeding of the 5,000, it's taking place in Jewish territory. We're back in Galilee, so this is a Jewish territory where, where there's 12 basketfuls of leftovers. When we get to chapter 8, when Jesus feeds the 4,000, they're not in Jewish territory anymore, rather... At the end of chapter 7, it says that they're back in the region of the Decapolis. Do you remember that? Where were we there last time? The the demoniac, remember? And so it's Gentile region. And so so Jesus there will feed 4,000 in Gentile territory. And there's seven basketfuls. We'll say more about that. But seven, that's another biblical number of completion of fullness. And so I think what Mark is doing is he's intentionally organizing his gospel. Maybe you see where I'm going with this, but Mark is structuring his gospel in such a way that it's clear to all his readers that Jesus is the shepherd, the one who satisfies, who sustains, who leads, who guides all types of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. Here in his ministry, it's not something that Paul makes up later. This is, I am the savior of all people, not just the Jews. The Jews, yes, but also the Gentiles. That's why he in John 10, I, there, there are others who are not of this pen, and I have to go get them too. And so in this passage, we see Jesus as the good shepherd, and, and that's our closing application. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the source of, of life-giving words. Having him eliminates all legitimate want. He's the source of eternal joy. Having him ensures green pastures forever. He's the anchor in life's storms. Having him restores the restless soul. He's he's the example to follow. Having him, having his commands leads to lives of joy-filled righteousness. And lastly, he is the fear of death eliminator. Having his presence ensures comfort and helps us to see death rightly. Because As you see, Jesus, the good shepherd, he doesn't just keep us from death. Jesus endures and conquers death on our behalf so that death, ultimate, permanent death, can never touch us. He's the fear of death eliminator. And so because of the good news of the gospel of Christ, our good shepherd, we can surely and certainly dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever in his presence. Surely we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray.